Okay, as in go. Sorry, one second. Fork Tales, a podcast that feeds the food and beverage world. Oh, awesome. Fortales is brought to you by Vigor, a branding and marketing agency for passion-driven, innovative restaurant, beverage, and hospitality brands. Learn more at vigorbranding.com. If you love what we're serving up, please give Fortales a five-star review on your podcast service of choice. Think of it as a tip for good service. Hey everyone, today I am joined by Andrew Gruhl from Slapfish. Uh, for those that don't know, Slapfish is a fantastic uh, fast casual brand focused on seafood, um, which may seem a little bit interesting considering we're in a, a world of burgers and pizza and all that other stuff, but it's a brilliant concept that we've fallen in love with. A um, little bit of transparency. We have worked with Slapfish. We are working with Slapfish, but there's a lot of story to tell here, not just about the brand, but uh, a lot of the journey um, from Andrew's perspective. So Andrew, say hello, give a little bit of backstory. Hey everybody, how you doing? Well, thanks for having me on, of course. And uh, you know, I, the backstory I can start from when I'm in diapers, but uh, you know, maybe I'll fast forward through those parts of my history. Uh, you know, really quickly, Slapfish is a modern seafood shack, uh, and we started as a food truck back in 2011. I started a program with the Aquarium of the Pacific, leading into that. Uh, that was a nonprofit. Real kind of, I hate to use the word sustainable seafood, but we'll just say seafood focused program, uh, that perfect combination between eat more seafood and pay attention to the ocean. I know it seems somewhat paradoxical, but we grew or I grew that program, if you will, and my studies within the seafood supply space and restaurants into the food truck because I realized that there was a need in the market for a higher quality seafood product, but at that cost and convenience of faster food, if you will, which we've seen the explosion of fast casual, of course, since really, you know, I mean, the, the, the previous recession, 2008, 2009, I think Ignite, you know, what, what was the trigger, the catalyst, if you will, to an explosion of that element of the industry. And then thus Slapfish was born as a food truck. Um, just roaming the streets of Southern California, selling lobster rolls and fish tacos. That's awesome. Um, now, I think when people are outside looking in, they see a brand that has realized a certain level of success. And it's really easy to fall into this uh, maybe rose-colored lenses of perfection. It's a linear path of just upward momentum and uh, you know success. And why don't I have that? And I think that's exacerbated by our uber social media connected world where everyone's just showing off their highlight reels. Uh, but that's not necessarily the story of Slapfish. I mean, there's a lot of struggle. There's a lot of uh, grappling and climbing, uh, cliff faces, metaphorically speaking. Uh, can you give us a little bit of that story and um, from that traveling the streets of uh, California to today, what have some of those hurdles been and how have you gotten over them? Yeah. And I set a high standard when I opened Slapfish because my my bar, if you will, was to actually scale. That's why I started it as a food truck originally was because I wanted to galvanize our position as just this approachable, affordable, very um, non-elite seafood brand. Because what I realized early on was that when it comes to seafood, you've got either white tablecloth, fancy fine dining, uber expensive seafood, or on the other end of the spectrum, you've got 
greasy fried things. And, and I don't want to call any brands out, but we all know that there was nothing in that sweet spot. So it started as a food truck, which was kind of hip and hot. But the goal, especially understanding the economics of seafood being a higher priced protein in this market and recognizing, hey, there's no player in this space, which either means one of two things, either A, people tried and couldn't make it, right? Or B, there isn't that much demand in this space. Or C, which is the crazy man's viewpoint, which was mine, was no, the demand is there. Nobody's done it right. And that's a pretty uh, high bar to set and try and jump over as a young entrepreneur. So I went into this thinking we're going to scale this out and that's the ways in which we're going to be able to serve this high quality seafood at the cost and convenience of faster food. We also had some vertical integration. So we were trying to buy direct from the source when it came to seafood to also establish that economic advantage. But in scaling, you've got two options. You either gain investment and you grow company stores or you establish a standard and you grow a franchise model. Well, in 2011, 2012, trying to raise capital for a restaurant coming off of a recession was virtually impossible, but I knew I needed to scale. So after a year of running the food trucks and then ultimately raising a couple dollars from friends and family and taking over a seventh generation bagel shop to open our first brick and mortar, I said, well, if I can't gain any more investment, I'm going to grow via franchising. Now, as a young chef, the word franchising is effectively a, a curse word. And it implies dilution of quality, dilution of, of um, brand equity, et cetera. But I figured I'm going to do this the right way and I'm going to get it done so that I can grow to 10, 15, 20 locations and then perhaps buy them all back. So I immediately put that massive barrier of franchising in front of myself and then tried to navigate through that gauntlet of how do we franchise and how do we grow properly. And yes, that came with lawsuits. It came... From 2012 to 2020, I was living in a perpetual state of assuming bankruptcy at each turn. We'll get back to the show in just one minute. But first, to say the restaurant industry is tough would be a gross understatement. It takes a certain kind of leader to create and scale successful restaurant brands. The kind of leader willing to grab the bull by the horns. But what does that look like? That's exactly what I cover in my new book, The Bullhearted Brand building bullish restaurant brands that charge ahead of the herd. In The Bullhearted Brand, I deliver profound, inspirational truisms through the lens of multicultural fables, folklore, and real-life stories where bulls play a heroic role. I couple these stories with first-hand experiences of good, bad, and ugly branding and marketing to deliver applicable, strategic thinking and knowledge. I'm kickstarting the book's publication to cover the cost of production and launch. On the Kickstarter page, you can pledge at different levels and receive bullhearted gear, from super awesome Raglan t-shirts to limited edition hand-signed and numbered lithograph prints of the collage illustrations inspired by those bull stories. Please visit the Kickstarter page and support the project via a pledge, a social media share, or both. Now, back to the show. Wow. That's intense. I mean, um... In, when when people come to us and they start talking about franchising, I always cringe a bit. Not not because it's a swear word or the quality, but for the reasons that you said. And also, managing franchisees can be very very difficult uh, because they are essentially business owners. They are putting in their own money, and with that comes a certain amount of feeling like you have control and a say in how things are done. Um, 
have you experienced that? Actually, I know you have. Uh, so what experiences have you had where you've had to, I hate to use the word police, but really police franchisees into sticking to the standard? Yeah. A young people probably think, well, why would you franchise it after only having one or two locations? Well, there's two stages at which franchisees are very attractive or, or franchisors are attractive to franchisees. The first stage is when you've only got one or two locations, because what I realize is the larger high net worth franchisees look at that as an opportunity to take the brand and control the brand, as you just said, right? They're young. We know better. Here's a chance for us to get in on the ground level of this brand, but then really control it without actually having to establish all the creative on our own. Well, that's what happened. A lot of franchisees came in wanting to do these big deals with us because they were under the impression that they, it was going to be the tail wagging the dog, if you will, right? Um, and then the second point at which you can be incredibly attractive as a franchisor or a franchise concept is, of course, when you've gone 100 plus locations, established all of your operating procedures, protocols, and a strong economic calculus. So we were on the former side of this, and it immediately became. I went from being a restaurateur, a creative, a chef to effectively a babysitter for people with a lot of money. <laughs> right. Yep. And it's tough. You know, how, how do you tell grown people that they're doing something wrong? And, and more so, it's, it's, I guess it's actually easy to, <clears throat> to kind of yell and wave your hands and say, you're doing something wrong. Stop it. Uh, but I think we all know that that's not how you get ahead. I mean, you're a parent. You realize that you can only yell so much. But if you really want to change behaviors, you have to show a path. And then, of course, at the very worst case scenario, um, you just need to take the toy away. And uh, I, I've known a bunch of brands that have debranded concepts or debranded um, uh, franchisees and, and simply just said, hey, this isn't working. Have you encountered that yet? And, and what was that process like? Yeah, getting into disputes with franchisees is is – not as simple as following the four walls of your franchise agreement, if you will. The one thing I learned in the franchising world is, is that the franchise agreement, while it sets a certain framework and um, uh, guidelines, it, it's not worth much, right? Our legal system nowadays can hang on the interpretation, the iteration of every single word and every legal document. And in so much as it's a standard form document, the franchise agreement, um, it can be interpreted so many different ways in so many different states. So when you do get into franchising, just assume that they're, you're, you're, it's a marriage. I mean, and your franchise agreement is a prenup and it's not going to get broken. And it, if you do get to that point of a dispute, it is in your best interest to try and resolve the dispute without attorneys, because that bill racks up very, very quickly. And the minute you pull that trigger, open that Pandora's box, whatever cliche you want to use, you're not putting the rabbit back in the hat. And yes, we did run it. We have had certain disputes with franchisees and they are cumbersome and they will bring you down, um, especially being a young brand. So while the idea of franchising seemed like the right path in order to grow and scale what for us was a good-willed concept, right? Get people to eat more seafood, but the right types of seafood. Shroud our concept with this idea of marine stewardship. Build a good employee-focused brand where we pay people a significant amount of money above minimum wage. Act as a North Star for the industry. An industry that's been full of toxic work environments. And, you know, we all know the social elements and have seen how they've been highlighted over the past couple of years. 
But if you're bringing on partners who don't necessarily believe in the same things you believe in, you have an incongruent brand and you have to anticipate that there's going to be major and massive struggles. And we ran into that. Um, franchisee disputes, I don't want to go into detail, you know, legal disputes, most of which came, forced us into taking on high, high, high interest debt, highway robbery type debt, which then only perpetuates your anxiety and your losses as a business. All the while, you may be doing well and you talk about social media and how great it is and the highlight reels. On the outside, you see this amazing brand with a massive following and great food, drool-worthy food, huge lines. But behind the scenes, especially in the franchise world, it's not always what it appears. Yeah, and I think one one of the areas where I think uh, a lot of franchisors get into trouble or not get into trouble, but where friction starts to happen is when franchisees start to optimize their supply chain. They look for the cheaper option. And for Slapfish, the sourcing of the the main product, the seafood, is it's foundational. It's it's like <laughs> the number one thing that makes Slapfish unique uh, and truly being sustainable and uplifting or, or living and uplifting that um, that marine stewardship, like you just said. Um, for you, I know sustainable is kind of like a love and hate word because there is a meaning that exists, but it's been bastardized quite a bit. Um, do you really feel like sustainability is a differentiator anymore? And how how is Slapfish truly sustainable uh, and what are the nuances of that term in your opinion? Yeah, great question. Look, sustainability is dead. Um, I've said that many times. It's been dead for a decade. The word itself just got walked around and, and trampled on, and it means absolutely nothing to anybody except the general idea that sustainability equals eco-friendly, but not even high quality. So in the very beginning, we tried to connect sustainability to high quality because everybody was like, well, what the hell is sustainable seafood anyway? And why should I care? And then you start to tell this story about the oceans and buying the right types of seafood and biomasses and making sure that things aren't being overfished or the fishing method starts to harm the surrounding ecosystem and the beauty and the, and the, and the power of the ocean being really what grounds everything in all forms of life. And people are just like, what the hell? Give me my fish and chips. You know, so the word <laughs> itself has forced people away from the movement because the word has become a bullet and people use it as they arm themselves with debate worthy, eco driven, uh, um, um, cliches and platitudes now on the business side, once corporate America takes all this stuff and, and, you know, kind of washes it over with their corporate overtones it's done. It's gone. So we've tried to actually get away from that idea of sustainable seafood, but yet it's very difficult not to come back to it. I think that's where the brand piece is so important is how do you, and and what we've challenged, been challenged with is how do we get across to our consumers that you're getting the best, highest quality seafood and it's seafood that's going to support a marine ecosystem, but without using all the jargon and the cliches that make people roll their eyes. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if you remember this, but we were we were meeting face to face in your Huntington Beach location, uh, having a good chat. And I believe there was a rep from a large food and produce provider who shall go unnamed. And uh, I, I remember you stopped our conversation in mid chat because you overheard this person talking about the sustainability of their fish and their seafood. And he said, how the hell can it be sustainable when you're spraying it with ammonia? 
Um, how can it be good for you when you're, you know, flash freezing it, which is essentially chemicals. And, um, I, I found that to be quite funny because you are quite passionate about that, that, uh, marine stewardship and sustainability in the truest meaning of the word, but that isn't just with, um, with, uh, uh, oceanic life. Uh, I remember talking with you about, um, freshwater fish and seafood as well. Uh, could you unpack that a little bit? Like the, the misinformation about, um, farming, you know, farmed salmon versus wild salmon. I, I thought, I thought that was a very interesting discussion. Yeah. Aquaculture is huge, right? Over 60% of the seafood that we consume worldwide is farmed. And yet now when you, if you went on the street and did the whole man on the street thing and asked people, is farm fish good or bad? Unequivocally, people are going to say, oh, it's bad, right? Because there's been massive campaigns. Um, and by the way, follow the money. I mean, you know, huge campaigns in order to demarket farmed fish. Well, who's doing that, right? Wild fisheries, specifically Alaskan Wild Seafood Institute, because it's against their you know, it's, it's, it's not in their interest for people to be buying farmed salmon when the wild salmon product is a lot more expensive and then you can get the farm salmon product. So of course I'm going to demarket that product, um, which I've always said is dangerous because all boats rise with a high tide. Uh, you know, I think a cliche that appropriately applies here because if people are eating more seafood in general, well then that helps everybody. And Pacific wild salmon is a totally different species than Atlantic salmon. Um, it's as different as an apple to a banana. While they might look the same, they don't taste the same and they have a, they're actually a different genetic species. So what's happened over the years as farm seafood has been demarketed, people are afraid of it. But farming seafood is actually the most environmentally friendly thing that you can do to relieve pressure off wild stocks. So that's how wild stocks and their biomass can actually start to rehabilitate themselves if you can replace some of the wild stock fisheries and the captures with farm seafood, well, then you can find this perfect equilibrium. And what they've done in terms of farming seafood has been so advanced that they've actually created environments that are more efficient than nature, right? Because if you think about it, you're taking wild fish to feed farm fish. So what's the feed conversion ratio? If I use 10 pounds of wild fish to get one pound of farm fish, that's incredibly inefficient. In nature, because fish swim around and eat smaller fish, right? It's like the conversion ratio for a pound of wild fish is like four to one. They have to eat one, four pounds of wild bait fish in order to create one pound of their own edible, you know, flesh in, in a farmed environment. Now it's less than one to one. It's like 0. 0.75, 0. 0.6 to one. It's incredibly efficient, 400 times more efficient than in nature. So if you, if you think about it, this is great for us, but the mentality is no farmed is bad. So the irony here to kind of go full circle is, is that if you ask people, do you eat farm seafood? They'll say, no, 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 never. Right. But we, so because of that, we don't have a, a national framework for farming seafood. Instead, we import all of our seafood, the majority of which is farmed. So be, we won't farm it here in the United States because we think it's a bad thing, but instead we'll import chemically laden farm seafood from China and Indonesia and Thailand and wherever and eat the chemically ridden farm seafood that was internationally imported here in the States versus having our own framework and infrastructure set up to do it properly. So it's a very interesting way in which American intellectualism actually is inefficient and we get in our own overthinking kills our own health to the degree that we just end up eating a worse product. And that's kind of a message that we've been trying to 
you know, engage in getting that message out there, if you will, um, while people are also going like this and saying, just give me my fish and chips. <laughs> right. Yeah. Cause at the end of the day, they just want to eat, but it, it, it's an interesting problem because I also, you know, with the, um, with the oceanic life, there's also the issue of plastics and how much plastics is ending up inside of the fish. And invariably that's going to start to be a part of DNA, you know, it just has to be with like the, the consumption on and on and on. Now, of course that, you know, evolution takes a while, but it, it can't be healthy. And so farmed, I, I imagine would protect some of that or reduce some of that. But we have bad actors out there, like you mentioned, and not just in the fishing world, but you know, we don't have to unpack China, but even seeing like the shrimp that comes from China, it is notably smaller, like extremely small compared to the, the, the fish that is um, from our own shores and either fished out in the ocean or in hatcheries or farms, which are bigger, plumper, and they taste better. And you, you can just taste the difference when you're doing like an A-B comparison from my um, experience. Um so sustainability is riddled, I think, with all this misinformation. But we also have a sustainability issue. I'm going to I'm going to totally violently switch gears. We have a sustainability issue with our our uh, labor force right now. And while I think there's a lot of arguments as to why that's happening, I don't know if we need to go into there um, as far as like the effects of the pandemic and uh, an unemployment going on for longer, uh, arguably than some people would say is healthy. Um, but I have some thoughts about how like the view of the restaurant industry, how, how it's viewed by young people, uh, people in their late teens and early 20s that are entering the workforce. And there's sort of like this sneering of I don't want to work in a restaurant or there's not a future there. And I think that's creating a bit of a, a sustainability issue. From, from your perspective, I know that you have been uh, a group that has paid people a bit more than minimum wage. Um, I know that you treat your people very well. What what other factors are you seeing that is affecting the inability to find good talent out there? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think first and foremost, the restaurant industry has been vilified over the past year, eighteen months through the pandemic, and it's been on a it's been on a fast track. We it's funny. I read a thread the other day where people were just crushing restaurant owners. They said the pandemic was so great because it was able to highlight how horrible restaurant owners are. And I'm listening to this and I was reading through this thread and, and, and looking at how people view restaurant owners. And we've gone from these, you know, corner store, mom and pops, charming restaurants to the villains of the pandemic. And because of that, a lot of young entry-level workers who would get into the restaurant industry as their first job, and many of them would stay in the restaurant industry and ultimately end up accelerating through that career. That was me. I got into the restaurant industry as my first job. I never thought it would be a career. And now here I am, right? The restaurant industry has the tendency to do that for people who get the bite. And I think those people are staying away. I think people are staying away from the restaurant industry as well because collectively, Americans have lost their damn minds. And, you know, this <laughs> pandemic has created so many divisions with people and throw politics on top of that and how everything has become political. I joke about the absence of sports has driven people towards sport like tribal politics. You put a name behind a jersey and that's your guy. And now it's become our politicians, our political parties, because people didn't have any sports to root for. So the guy who was playing fantasy football 
his whole life is now suddenly playing fantasy politics on Twitter or Facebook or who knows what. And they pick a side and they vilify the opposite side, not even understanding the foundation or the basis of a lot of these political sides. When at the end of the day, the politicians are loving this, the media is loving this, and there's this division. So what happens is people come into restaurants now and they're assholes. <laughs> we, we, I mean, people don't mm-hmm, tip. They mm-hmm. get in arguments about masks. They get in, Now it's, they're getting in arguments about vaccines in the restaurant. And you're asking these 17, 18, 19-year-old entry-level team members to act as bouncers, police masks, you know, you know, mask police, vaccine police. And they're like, I don't want to deal with any of this. I don't want to deal with this vitriol. I'm out. I'm going to go get a job where I can work remotely, maybe write some articles, uh, do what needs to get done, work at home four days of the week, make X amount of dollars. So it's been a real interesting conversation where restaurants have been ground zero for this. And uh, I think there's a lot of, I think the media is painting it with certain brushes that don't necessarily paint the truth. So it's been incumbent upon restaurant owners to kind of speak out. But the, the scary thing nowadays is when you speak out, you risk cancel as being canceled, um, which I think is a, a popular term from the past. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and it's interesting because <clears throat> in, in those same breaths, people kind of fight for, or, or you hear people fighting for minimum wage, um, which I laugh about because I, I can't find any information as to how we got to that number that $15 number, like what science and what, uh, what, what metrics led to $15 is the appropriate minimum wage, which makes me laugh because it's like, if, if that is an arbitrary number, that's just been sort of bought into, then why is it not $20? Why is $20 not the minimum wage? But I think money is such a lazy, um, area to identify as a driver or a hindrance to hiring. The things that you just said, I think, have a lot more impact on that. Like, I want to go to work. I don't want to be threatened because maybe I'm not vaccinated because I have a choice. Um, or that I'm, I haven't, I don't, I decided not to wear my mask or my, the owner of the, the company has decided that masks are no longer mandatory or all these other things. Like, man, I just want to like make food and I want to serve people. Um, I don't think a $15 minimum wage is going to overcome that hurdle. And I sure as hell don't see people being excited about going to work for $15 an hour when they have to be police and bouncers and referees and all that stuff. Um, you know, what's the light at the end of the tunnel here? Do you see any, is there any kind of solution? Well, I think the light at the end of the tunnel is the economy opening up and things actually freely operating in the absence of, of government sticking their hand into the economy. Because what's happening right now is, is that there's an artificial way in which they, the, the, the um, inertia of the economy is being redirected in certain political directions. So this minimum wage conversation is really important in the context of unemployment and unemployment benefits. And that's become a soundbite for both sides of the aisle. One to say, well, people are making so much to stay home. People are being paid to stay home. Well, that implies laziness, right? And that's not the case. I can tell you right now, that isn't the case. And on the other side of the aisle, people are saying, no, people, if you pay people more and pay them a living wage, well, then they're going to go and they're going to work. Well, that's not the case either, especially as you you described, because a lot of people just want to work in an environment that's stripped free of these anxieties. Because 
let's say I'm making $13 an hour, minimum wage goes up to $15 an hour. Now I'm working 35 hours a week. That's an extra $70 a week. Throw 25% taxes on there. So now I'm down to, uh, you know, I'm down to like $50 a, a week extra, right? So we're talking $50 a week extra, $100 every two weeks. Now $100 is a lot of money, but $100 may not drive somebody to go and get an entirely new job, go through new training, find new friends, establish a new level of comfort in that job. There's so many things that can be done outside of money, as you say. You know that is a cheap metric by which you judge a job's value, right? It, it, you know, and we've looked at a lot of those things. Many of the things are soft. I've always said from day one, employees can take whatever days they want off. You don't have to go through this gauntlet of getting a request and being approved from your manager and then being rejected because only one person was allowed to take the day off. We pay double time on holidays. Nobody pays for any food at my restaurants. You always eat free, right? That's a that's an amenity you can offer that I actually think has significant value. Um, health insurance, but even more mm-hmm. so, just making sure that you're not you're not fostering a toxic work environment. You put your team members ahead of your customers. Interestingly, it's always been the other way around, right? Customer first, but that's not the case. I, the Ritz Carlton had a principle years ago. It was the ladies and gentlemen serving ladies and gentlemen, which while it seems somewhat aristocratic, I think it's an important message because it's you are equals, right? Customers are equals with the team members. And so many times team members are treated like slaves while customers are the people that are spending the money. Your strongest and most important asset to any business is the human capital. Um, so I think that that's an important message and, and, and it, it is arbitrary, it, you know, 15, 16, 17, 20, you know, I could, I don't know what minimum wage is and I never have because we don't, we're, we're never near that, that ground level. We've always been firm believers that if you pay a significant amount of money and an, almost a, an obscenely, um, um, high amount of money in, in, in relation to what I guess minimum wage would be that you're going to decrease turnover. And then that pays for itself because the cost of recruiting a new employee, we all know is so significant. If you amortize those costs across your entire labor force, um, it's, it probably is an extra $4 an hour (laughs) over, over a year. Right. So, so I think that that's, that is an interesting debate or conversation that businesses should have and and can have that are independent of mandates, government regulations, because then it actually holds the restaurants accountable to start to make some of these decisions themselves and allow the free market to drive business towards those who, who do or don't. Yeah. And so that, that, this whole thing is compounded in complexity when you get into the franchise model, right? Yeah. Because yeah. there's this back and forth, you know, swinging pendulum of, uh, the franchisor is essentially responsible for the employees of franchisees, and then it's not, and then it swings back to it is, and it just seems like every four years or maybe even every two years that pendulum, and it's it's not really dying down; it just keeps on flying back and forth. So, how do you influence this um, this thinking with franchisees and get them to buy in instead of strictly looking at that spreadsheet and saying, "How cheap can I pay people?" Um, yeah. You know, great, how do you great, deliver that message? Great question. And and just for history for the listeners too, is, is that there was a, a, a case that eventually went, it was a federal case and it was overseen by the National uh, Labor Relations Board. So under the Obama administration, there were certain um, advisors or certain, certain figures that were vital to the decision that effectively said in this McDonald's case, because the case was about a franchisee mistreating their employees. And then ultimately McDonald's corporate got involved and they were kind of 
sticking their hand in the pot and manipulating these situations so that the employees didn't unionize. And then the case ultimately said, well, if the franchisor is affecting the ability for them to unionize on a franchisee basis, well, then the franchisor is responsible for the employees of the franchisee. That would set a precedent in the world of franchisors that is scary. It would prohibit people from wanting to even franchise in general. And as we know, franchising is a really great vehicle whereby you can give people a nice business and entrepreneurial opportunity without, well, while you share the risk across both sides of the aisle. Um, And then when Trump came in, then that was overturned. He put his cronies in and then they overturned it or they kind of stalled the case. And now under the Biden administration, they're suggesting it's going to get flipped again. So you're right. We don't know who's in charge, who's going to be open to this. We now just understanding the politics of it. We've just, I've told all my my team members, assume we are responsible, right? Just assume the worst. So how does that affect franchisees? Well, all they care about is the bottom line. We're taking a percentage of their sales to, in order to provide them all these assets, the licensing, et cetera. And they're saying, well, then because you're taking these royalties, I'm not going to pay my employees as much as you pay your employees because I've got, I've got less margin compression. And then they end up paying their employees less. They treat their employees like crap. And then it's a full circle the franchisor ends up feeling the heat and then it, it tarnishes the brand from, from the employee perspective on a franchisor's basis. I was just talking with a reporter from the Washington Post about this yesterday and I said, look, what everything I'm telling you applies to my company stores and I'm not, I cannot speak on behalf of my franchisees because frankly, it is a debate I get into all the time with the franchisees about paying their employees too little. And then they say, well, you want us to pay them more then stop charging me royalties right? It's this, it's this kind of circular, uh, firing squad. So I think that, that the, the, at the end of the day, the answer, which is of course a lot more qualitative than it is quantitative is really trying to get partners within a business, whether it's investors, whether it's, uh, whether it's, um, 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 licensed stores or franchisees to buy into this idea that when you pay more, you get a better product, product, higher sales, sales solves everything, et cetera. Yeah, it's interesting how many uh, people <clears throat> who aren't necessarily in industry, they, they don't really understand. They know the word franchise, but they don't yeah. really put it together. So uh, a case or an example of this was during the pandemic. I was speaking to someone and they're saying, we're doing everything we can to support the local restaurants, you know, blah, 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 like screw the, screw the big guys. And I'm like, wait, wait, wait. I was like, that McDonald's down the street, that's not that's not owned by McDonald's. Yeah. Like that's. That's Jerry and Kim, you know, in your neighborhood. They own it. They're operating it. So, like, don't discount them, you know, because, yes, we want to see the independent restaurants thrive, but those are independent restaurants in their own right because they are uh, owner-operated a lot of times. Or, you know, maybe they have – go ahead. Yeah. No, I was going to say, and if anything, they actually – it's tougher for them because they're up against not just the – effects of the economy, but they're up against a franchisor who in McDonald's case is holding them to such high standards that they're probably hurting even more than some of the independent restaurants who have the flexibility to make last, you know, quick decisions and, and quick changes. Yeah, a hundred percent. And, and I think what's also interesting about that is like, again, with McDonald's or a Burger King or a Wendy's, I mean, you only have a small mile radius around your location before you hit another location. 
So it's like you're you're almost um, you know you're advertising a lot of times or marketing against another uh, uh, Wendy's or McDonald's, and that's really tough because you know, these people are operating and yes, they get the juice of these national, beautiful campaigns by McDonald's and all the technology and innovation that's coming out of that organization, but it's not without its um, issues. And and people don't quite realize that unless you're really in this industry. Um, And that's tough, but I'm going to, I'm going to take another violence uh, shift here as we kind of land this plane a little bit. What is your favorite item on the slapfish menu? Um, if I'm eating healthy, it's the power bowl, right? So we've got shrimp and, uh, we've got salmon on there, almonds, pumpkin seeds, brown rice, avocado, all the things that are power foods, right. That are, that are incredibly filling, rich, delicious, high protein and healthy. But if I'm indulging, you know, maybe I had a couple too many pops last night and I say, I'm, I'm not counting calories tomorrow. I need something to soak this up. I'm starting off with a chowder fries which are all natural cut fries smothered in scratch made clam chowder topped with double smoked bacon and our awesome sauce. And then I'm finishing it up with a clobster grilled cheese. So double toasted grilled cheese, traditional grilled cheese, just packed with lobster and crab, thus the clobster and just cooked to a melting tenderness. Yeah. I think you went too fast on the chowder fries. Can you repeat that description, but slower? <laughs> <laughs> Will you add a little more? They are so good. That's right. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna place I'm gonna light some uh, candles. You know, dim dim the lights and play some Barry White. And uh, just need you to say that real slow. Yeah. <laughs> um, so what's next for Slapfish? What's on your horizon? Um, what what's coming down the pike? Well, you know, we're at this point now where um, we've recapitalized the company. We've got a new partner out of Texas, which is which is great because that's now giving us the opportunity to focus on each of us to kind of, I call it seats on the bus, right? Like all of us on the team where we before it was just a big game of trying to keep everything alive. Now we can focus on what we do best, establish a whole new menu, establish new footprint, new format, a new format of the store. We're going to redesign and completely redevelop our flagship location in Huntington Beach, Um we're going to put an actual bar inside the restaurant and then kind of have this flex casual model. And then from there, we'd like to grow that out um, multiple locations a year in the Southwest region. So we're going to do Texas, California, Arizona, kind of connect through there, try and grow out heavily as a regional brand, similar to an in and out And then from there, perhaps we would start franchising again. But for right now, it's all about really focusing on the product, vertically integrating that supply chain so we can continue to stick to our foundations, right? Our core principles, really high quality seafood, great employees and team members, and just open, honest transparency and, and, you know, to make it matter. Absolutely. I love that. Um, where can people find Slapfish? Uh, where can they connect? Uh, Slapfish is, you know, right nowadays, right? Everybody goes on Instagram. So at Slapfish Seafood, um, on, or sorry, at Slapfish on Instagram or at Chef Gruel on Twitter, Slapfish Seafood on Twitter, Andrew Gruel on Instagram, or just go to the website, www.slapfishrestaurant.com. Awesome, man. Thanks for your time, your insights, and your candor. This has been amazing. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. It's an honor. If you love what we served up, please follow us at Vigor Branding on Instagram, LinkedIn, YouTube, and Medium. Fork Tales is produced by the team at Vigor. Audio and video post-productions provided by Zencaster. Music performed by Jet Trash and licensed through musicbed.com. Yeah.
Joseph handles his own hair, makeup, and stunts. Copyright 2003 to 2021, Vigor Graphic Design, LLC, all rights reserved.